Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, in honor of Men's Health Awareness Month, Dr. Chagpar welcomes Dr. James Yu for a conversation about prostate cancer. Dr. Yu is an Associate Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and Director of the Prostate and Genitourinary Cancer Radiotherapy Program at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Chagpar is an Associate Professor in the Department of Surgery and the Assistant Director for Global Oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center. James, you know, we talk about men's cancer awareness, and by far, I think the leading cancer affecting men is prostate cancer. Is that right? That's right. Uh, prostate cancer is the most common solid tumor in men. And so what do men need to know about prostate cancer? Because it seems to me that almost everybody is getting prostate cancer out there. Right. Well, I think that's one of the things they need to know is that it's such a common uh, cancer that obviously it's it's it can't all be deadly because otherwise there'd be um, um, you know, people, people dying all over. over left and right because yeah. one in six men are, are diagnosed with prostate cancer within their lifetime. And the older you get, there's some studies showing that if you're in your 90s, you're more often than not to be walking around with a little prostate cancer. I think what, what men need to realize is that not all prostate cancers are the same. Most prostate cancers are very slow-moving to the point that some medical experts don't think they should be called cancers at all. And then there is a subset of prostate cancers that can be deadly and need treatment. And it's differentiating between those that we're working furiously on, but also requires a conversation with a physician. So it sounds a lot like the same story with breast cancer, but the good news is that some cancers uh, you can pick them up early and get them treated, and that's all there is to say about that. Uh, it's important to catch the bad ones, and some of the good ones you don't need to treat. Is that's that right. pretty much it? That's that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Uh, the, the tricky part is a lot of the ones we don't need to treat are getting treated, either because the men or the physicians are, are anxious about, quote-unquote, letting a cancer go. And a lot of the ones that we would have loved to have treated earlier when it was in the curable form are, are spreading beyond our ability to cure. And it, that's the continuing work being done, trying to figure out you know, who's the wolf and who's the sheep uh, within the prostate. So let's talk about screening, because it seems to me that a lot of this has to do with trying to pick up cancers early. And the second part is figuring out which ones are the bad actors and which ones aren't. Right. So who needs screening? When does screening start? How often do we do screening and with what? Right. So um, generally, the folks that need screening are the people who are going to live at least 10 years from now. So everybody pull out your crystal ball, <laughs> right. look in there and see whether you're going to live for right. 10 years. Right. Okay. That, and that's, a, that's exactly right. It's a very tricky thing to decide. But, you know, men who are in generally in good health, 
Um, and most guidelines say, you know, men in the age of 55 to 69 should be screened. Now, there are some guidelines that push that even earlier, up to 40 even, for, you know, as, as young as 40 years of age requiring screening if they have a family history of prostate cancer. And, and that's not your great uncle's cousin. That's, you know, a brother, a father uh, having prostate cancer. Even if your brother or father got prostate cancer when they were in their 90s? Well, that, I mean, that's a good point. Um, I would say if your brother or father got prostate cancer in their 90s, perhaps that doesn't count as <laughs> strong family history that just, you know, is having an old man in your life. Yeah. Um, uh, or being of African-American uh, ancestry uh, is an indicator that you may have aggressive prostate cancer. And so the American Urological Association is actually pushing those men age 40 and, and up to get screened, provided they can have a conversation with their physicians after screening about what it means to have an elevated PSA, what is the likelihood of having disease you don't really need to treat, and being comfortable with, with, with having a diagnosis of prostate cancer but not undergoing treatment for it. So in terms of screening, are we talking about PSA or are we talking about just a digital rectal exam or are we talking about both or are we talking about, you know, all kinds of fancy, <laughs> you know, MRIs and ultrasounds and right. 3D imaging and... In present day, we're talking about a digital rectal exam and a PSA blood test. That's what we're talking about as the standard of care screening. Now... Sometimes the PSA misses a prostate cancer that the digital rectal exam will pick up, and sometimes the digital rectal exam misses something that the PSA will pick up. So right now we're, we have to so do both. So you have both. to do both. Right. And how often do you do that? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think yearly or every other year would probably be sufficient, in, in my opinion. Uh, I think um, at present most people are doing it yearly. And so if you're in your 40s, they're really only recommending that for African-American men or those who have a family history. According to one guideline, right. And if uh, and other guidelines, like the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force says, no, start at age 55. Regardless so, of your family history right. or your race or ethnicity. Right. And they're not even saying start at 55. They're saying talk about it at 55. It's no longer forbidden. Uh, in uh, 2012... Uh, the task force finalized their guidelines and gave PSA screening uh, a don't do recommendation. Mm. And recently, they're they're reevaluating that. And publicly, they came out and said, "Look, we're we're reevaluating this for public comment. Now we're considering and likely going to change it to talk to your physician about it, age fifty five uh, to sixty nine." And so, when they said, you know, don't do. And now might, you know, kind of soften the edges a little bit. Okay, well, maybe talk to your doctor, but don't necessarily still do. Why is that? Because a lot of the general public, and I think a lot of our listeners, are sitting there saying to themselves, excuse me, we have talked for a long time about the value of picking up cancer early. Doesn't PSA do that? Right. So that it speaks to the complexity of evaluating screening and proving that the screening saves lives. Okay, so does it? Um, based on uh, a randomized trial in Europe, we think it does. Um, the randomized trial in the U.S. did not show that screening saved lives, but there's been a lot of criticism of that study um, because 
the arm that was supposed to not be screened was in reality pre-screened. So it was a very um, messy trial to interpret. So a lot of us are taking away from that, well, there, we, there probably is a survival benefit, and the study here in the States was flawed. And so, in general, even though the USPSTF has said, don't do a PSA, and is now saying, well, maybe we'll adjust that and say, talk about a PSA if you're 55 or older, are most oncologists and most urologists saying, get screened? Yes, I think most are. Um, studies looking at practice patterns after the USPSTF initial recommendations in 2008 and then again in 2012, looking at screening, did show a decline. But in reality, most people were still getting screened during that time because a lot of prostate cancer experts, a lot of oncologists simply did not um, agree with that recommendation because of our own personal experiences with the difference between early caught cancer and later stage cancer. So one of the questions that people ask is, well, what's the downside to screening? I right. mean, like, is, is there a downside? Right. And, then, and of course, there's a downside. Um, if you get diagnosed with a prostate cancer that doesn't need treatment, or perhaps you could watch for a couple years, but then you do decide to get treatment unnecessarily, and you suffer harm from that treatment, then the screening has caused you harm down the line. Uh, and that is one of the reasons why the USPSTF and, and people who came out against prostate cancer screening were um, you know, in favor of, of holding back screening. Uh, it's this, these downstream effects that can occur. And so it really is the treatment that resulted from the screening. Right. But that goes to your initial point about not all prostate cancers need treatment. So even though you get screened, really, if you get screened, the positive shouldn't be, I've got prostate cancer. The positive should be, I've got a really bad prostate cancer that requires right. treatment. Because right. if I have a prostate cancer, it may be that I have a prostate cancer that I can just sit on and watch and you know, get checkups, and I might be just fine. Um, but I'm having the screening to make sure that I don't have one that is going to kill me. Right. So, so people are trying to insert an, an, another step between PSA screening for any prostate cancers and treatment is that then there's another level of diagnostic test to tease out aggressive or clinically relevant prostate cancer. And there's all sorts of um, companies for, in that space trying to market their their particular molecule as being an indicator for higher risk disease. Um, you can also try imaging the prostate and before the biopsy. And then there's there's many people after the biopsy, right? When you actually have that biopsy prostate tissue, trying to differentiate the actual prostatic tissue histologically or under the microscope for the listeners who aren't familiar with the medical terms, trying to tease out the aggressive prostate cancers at that point. So there's multiple steps along the way, pre-screening, post-screening, pre-biopsy, post-biopsy, that you can insert a test, a genetic test, or something to try and figure out who's the aggressive prostate cancer and who's not. Ultimately, the, the true arbiter of whether it's an aggressive cancer or not is going to be to take the whole prostate out and look at it under the microscope, or time. Time will tell. And the, the treatment that you gave, 
you know, didn't work and then the, the cancer became metastatic. So it, we're, we're working very hard to try and, you know, figure it out before you have to take the prostate out. Yeah. Or radiate it, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, because I can, I can just imagine a lot of uh, our male listeners out there just rolled their eyes and said, you know, my choices are either take the prostate out or wait for this thing to spread, really. Right. Um, so so let's uh, let's go back a step to uh, the screening part. I just want to tease out a couple of uh, key pieces um, so that uh, both I and our, our listeners are clear. When the uh, one guideline recommended uh, screening younger for African-Americans, why is that? Do they generally get worse disease? Do they have some kind of is are they genetically predisposed to get worse disease is it that they just present later with disease how much of that is racially mediated how much of that is socioeconomic right so we're we're people are trying to tease that out but epidemiologically uh, african american men do worse after a prostate cancer diagnosis likely due to later diagnosis of disease um, being a major part of it uh, and there, there may be more aggressive histologies also, more aggressive under the microscope types of cancer that are more prevalent in African-American men as well. Um, because of that, because African-American men are doing worse, one of the ways that we're trying to you know, improve that is to catch the disease earlier. Um, and um, some people argue for more aggressive therapy you know, using more, for example, androgen deprivation therapy in combination with radiation um, um, and things like that. But because we can't, you know, turn back the clock um, and improve outcomes for people years ago, um, we're trying to diagnose those cancers earlier. Okay. Well, we're going to learn more about prostate cancer, both in African-American and all other men, as soon as we return from a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about prostate cancer with my guest, Dr. James Yu. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 60,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. In many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. This has been a Medical Minute, brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. James Yu. We're talking about screening and treatment for prostate cancer, and right before the break, we were starting to understand, or try to understand, why it is that African-American men are recommended 
by at least by one screening guideline to get screening earlier. And it's because I understand, Dr. Yu, that they present with more aggressive disease. What I'm wondering is if you took a group of African-American men and a group of Caucasian men, let's say, and they had exactly the same screening um, they, they, they went for their screening at, starting at whatever age they're supposed to start and they got exactly the same screening and they had exactly the same, uh, other health status, um, nutrition status, uh, education, insurance, overall socioeconomic status. Would the African-American man still present with more aggressive disease? In other words, is this racial? Or is this socioeconomic as a covariate that is often linked? Right. So it depends on which study you read. And the studies have been conflicting. And part of that is because it's so difficult to unpack the impact of race on cancer outcomes. And we can't randomize people to different races. We can't take people and, you know, change them. Um, And so in the U.S., as you know, health outcomes are so tightly connected to your access to care, your, your experiences growing up, your healthcare attitudes, and all of that is, is enmeshed. And so I don't know the answer to that it's question. It's hard to tell. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. All I know is that we need to do better for our African-American patients. And one of the ways that we're trying to is to recommend that they get screened earlier and being more aggressive in, in screening them. Okay. So... People get screened. Uh, If you're African-American or you have a family history, at least one guideline says start at 45 with PSAs and digital rectal exams annually. The rest of the people start at 55. So you go. You get your PSA. You get your digital rectal exam. And let's suppose the PSA is elevated. Then what? So if your PSA is elevated, you typically will get a confirmatory one as well, and both of them are elevated. Then you have a discussion with your doctor about whether this leads to a biopsy or not, and what are your attitudes? What what are you going to do if you get a prostate cancer biopsy? And kind of prep you for the idea that it could be something you don't need to do anything about. But if you've done the PSA and it's positive twice, is there a reason why you wouldn't do a biopsy? Um, I guess if if you were very much against any sort of instrumentation of your prostate, because you haven't had a cancer diagnosis yet. Then why would you do the PSA? Because it's a very simple, a lot of men actually get PSAs without knowing that they've had PSAs. It's part of their their blood panel. You know, they get their cholesterol, et cetera, and it just kind of comes out. So let's suppose that you're an informed patient. <laughs> Why would you get a PSA if you were never going to follow right. the next step, That's right? A, it's right. kind of like right. getting a mammogram every year, but then saying, oh, there's something there. Well, I don't want to know what that right. is. Then it's kind of like, well, why'd you have the mammogram right. and expose yourself to radiation and right. incur health care costs? Right. So let's suppose that uh, <laughs> you you have a positive PSA times two. Right. The conversation with your doctor is, I have an elevated PSA. It's time to go get a biopsy. It's time to go get a biopsy. Yep. How do they know what to biopsy? Well, um, most places around the country will do a random 12-core biopsy of your prostate. 
Um, just like blind. Just like blind. Yep. Random that is so scary. I can't even tell you. Uh, here at Yale and, and lots of other places, we do an MR guided biopsy as well. Dr. Sprinkle and the groups over, uh, folks over in the uh, urology department are, are one of the earliest adopters of this targeted biopsy. And so um, typically we do that in addition to the 12 core biopsy. I don't know. Dr. Sprinkle can clarify this. At a later point, they may be going more towards the targeted biopsy by itself, should the results be excellent. So, and is this, is the is the philosophy there that um, it, you will find abnormal cells no matter where it is in the prostate that you take this biopsy from if your PSA is elevated? Right. It's the idea that the entire prostate's been exposed to the same, you know, testicular I mean the testosterone milieu, right? And so age. it's not it, it's not like there's a particular area. So in right. the breast, you know, right. if you were you know, to do a, a biopsy with your eyes closed, that would not work. Right. Traditionally, it's a random. Well, not random, but in in you know taking a little chunk out of different pieces of the okay. So so they undergo this mm-hmm. biopsy, and then it comes back. Cancer, right? But all cancers are not right the same. So the the prostate cancer is typically graded uh, per something called a Gleason score. So under the microscope, uh, how aggressive the prostate cancer looks, um, and it you know you get two numbers: the primary and the secondary Gleason score, meaning the what's the most prevalent pattern? That's the first number, and what's the second most prevalent pattern? And it's one through five for the primary and then one through five for the secondary. And they add them together for the final Gleason score. There's some nuances in there as well because a three plus four is not the same as a four plus three. And there's a new grading system out as well trying to differentiate between those. Um, right. So uh, so the rules of mathematics cease to exist right. in, uh, in prostate cancer. Um, <laughs> but somehow you end up with a final score. Right. Okay. Then what happens? So once you get a final score, um, if you have a high Gleason score, so eight nines or tens, typically those will also undergo um, uh, staging with a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis and maybe also a bone scan. Uh, if your Gleason score is a six and your PSA is you know, under 10, you don't necessarily need staging at that point um, because it, the likelihood that this disease has spread is, is very low. So in the community, that may be all there is to it. There may be a role for MRI as well to look at the prostate and see how far outside of the prostate uh, any cancer has gone. Now. MRI has not disseminated completely throughout our, our listening universe, but we're doing that more and more here because it is useful for staging the prostate in an even more granular way than just the CT scan. Okay, so 8, 9, and 10, they scan your whole body and see if there's cancer anywhere else. And if it is anywhere else, then that's metastatic disease. Um, and you don't want to be there. Right. You would rather be in localized disease. Right, and the vast majority of prostate cancers are localized. And so when you're six, uh, do all sixes get treatment? So no, and and I think um, if you have an initial diagnosis of a Gleason 6 prostate cancer and a low PSA, and uh, you you should have a frank conversation with your physician and try to err on the side of being conservative and not treating the prostate cancer. If it's a true Gleason 6 prostate cancer, it is very, very, very unlikely to cause uh, 
death from prostate cancer. Okay, but I can imagine that a lot of people are listening to this going, I have a number, a six. Right. And you're telling me that you would veer towards pretty much watchful waiting. Right. But if I had an eight, nine, or ten, you'd be worried about this spreading all over my body. That's exactly That's a right. difference of like two numbers. And I, I understand that right. mathematics ceases to exist right. in prostate cancer, but that's pretty scary. So how do you follow a six? And how do you reassure gentlemen who have a six that their prostate cancer isn't going to kill them? So you follow a six um, with um, repeated imaging of the prostate. Well, here at Yale, we follow them with uh, a re-imaging with an MRI and re-biopsying the dominant tumor with a targeted biopsy. Um, or you can also just follow them with their PSAs, because the PSA is actually, for Gleason 6 prostate cancer, a very sensitive indicator of prostate cancer burden. And if the PSA remains low, then you can Keep going. Biopsy in a couple of years, and then if they, you know, if they're the gentleman's 85 and their PSA is kind of poking along and they're fine and they just have a Gleason six diagnosis, then you leave them and alone and let them, them alone live yeah. their life. That's right. And if their PSA goes up, well, then you treat. Then you can look for the source of the PSA. Sure. And what what about a seven? We went from six to right. eight, nine, and ten. <laughs> I noticed that seven Sevens was missing. The, right. So sevens are the most common, unfortunately, cancer. Uh, and, and the three plus fours, uh, there's research at MD Anderson, Slow Kettering. The three plus fours we call low intermediate risk, and the four plus threes we call high intermediate risk. Oy. Roy. And um, the difference there is relevant for radiation therapy and whether you recommend the use of hormone therapy in conjunction with radiation or not. But those Gleason 7s, I believe, do require treatment. Those are the ones that may lead to prostate cancer death uh, or me- metastatic disease and are, are typically caught early enough that treatment will be successful. So a 7 needs treatment mm-hmm. and an 8, 9, or 10 that has not spread all over your body also, also needs, needs treatment. treatment. Absolutely. So how do we decide what kind of treatment? Like, I mean, do all of these guys get their prostate out? Right. So deciding what treatment that a patient gets depends on how healthy they are, whether they're a surgical candidate, what I think the likelihood of regional disease or, or disease outside of the prostate is, it's my personal belief that the high-risk patients should get at least a radio, you know, radiation oncology consultation, but I would prefer that they receive long-term hormone therapy in combination with radiotherapy because I think it's a more regional treatment for uh, prostate cancer that may be more regional. Now, that's an academic discussion that I continue to have every day with our urologists, who I think rightly note that if they can get the prostate cancer out, they could potentially spare the patient 18 months of of hormone therapy. And I think that is a valuable endpoint. The tricky part is there we don't know. There hasn't been a randomized trial showing one's better than the other. And in my opinion, if you get surgery and the cancer comes back, you'll need radiation anyways. And the combination of the two therapies obviously has the side effects of the combination of the two therapies, which is more than either one by itself. So so the options are surgery or radiation. hormonal therapy and radiation. For the high-risk folks, that's correct. Um, you know, every now and then there's someone who's high-risk who is not healthy, cannot tolerate hormone therapy that we just treat with radiotherapy alone, but I think that's a suboptimal treatment. 
And so the difference is then surgery versus radiation. Right. And so if you are healthy and you are a surgical candidate, you would opt is there is there a, a do so we veer are, one way or so, another? So I'm a radiation oncologist. Obviously, I'll biased have a opinion, right? right. Okay, so, disclaimer so in here. In my opinion, I think the surgical candidates are the healthy, intermediate or low intermediate risk patients. Um, I think folks with low risk prostate cancer shouldn't be getting treatment up front. They should be followed. Right. And uh, honestly, the low intermediate and um, High intermediate patients, I think, could arguably get radiotherapy as well. And there was a randomized trial in the intermediate risk space, uh, the PROTECT study, which compared patients who had a prostatectomy to those who had six months of hormone therapy and radiation and found no difference in survival. So I think a cancer control, the two are equivalent. Right. And they only differ in terms of their side effects. So talk to your doctor about the side effects. Talk to your doctor. And if you haven't seen a radiation oncologist, I would encourage you to do so. And if you haven't seen a urologist, you should do so as well and get both sides of the story. So so tell us a little bit about the side effects of both. Sure. The combination of, of so surgery places you at risk of urinary incontinence, urinary dribbling. Radiation uh, causes you uh, the risk of having uh, rectal irritation, bleeding, um, and, and also will impact your urinary control after surgery because um, radiation can cause you know, stiffening of the tissues, stiffening of those urinary sphincters, and cause uh, a little bit more dribbling after surgery. So if you can avoid one of the two, I would highly encourage it as opposed to getting the two at the same time. That said, some people, we have to do both because they've had surgery, they have prostate cancer recurrence, and radiation remains the only chance for cure after prostate cancer recurrence. Dr. James Yu is an associate professor of therapeutic radiology and director of the Prostate and Genitourinary Cancer Radiotherapy Program at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu. And past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.